0: This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Dr. James Lindsay is a public intellectual, a notable author on a range of subjects. He holds a doctorate in mathematics from the University of Tennessee at Knoxville. But his academic and intellectual output expand well beyond the fields of physics and math. His six books span a variety of fields from philosophy and science to religion and contemporary thought. He's also the co-founder of New Discourses. His most recent book, Cynical Theories, How Activist Scholarship Made Everything About Race, Gender, and Identity, and Why This Harms Everybody, he co-wrote with Helen Pluckrose. It's an important critique of critical theory and contemporary culture. It's a tour de force looking at the intellectual landscape that we confront today. I'm looking forward to this conversation with James Lindsay. Dr. James Lindsay, welcome to Thinking in Public.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: Yeah, the title of your new book is uh, Cynical Theories, with the word critical crossed out. The subtitle, How Activist Scholarship Made Everything About Race, Gender, and Identity, and uh, Why This Harms Everybody. You wrote the book with Helen Pluckrose, and uh, it's making quite a splash, uh, not only perhaps in uh, academic circles, uh, but also in um, a a larger reach. And, And my guess is that was a part of the intention behind your writing of the book.
1: Yeah, the goal of, of writing the book was actually to try to get these ideas outside of the academy. It's nice if we can get the academy to reckon with mm-hmm. the argument that we've made, but it's more important from our perspective for average people to understand this very academic language and to understand where these ideas have come from.
0: Yeah, because as uh, we'll get to in, uh, in your argument, the problem is that what happens on the campus doesn't stay on the campus, and uh, that's something we're witnessing right now uh, in many ways on the streets of America.
1: That's right. That's right. Um, it's, it, 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 it's a lot of people believe that the, the university is just this removed place where kind of peculiar professors go and they, they teach their ideas, their theories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then, you know, young people go and they have their college experience, whatever that all entails, uh, some of which is academic and a lot of which is probably growing up uh, for the first time away from home. And that it doesn't really matter much what happens in the university, but this is not true. Um, ideas have consequences, and ideas are uh, concentrated and they're they're explored and they're developed and then they're taught within the context of the university, and they're taught to people who will go on to be our professionals. They're taught to people who go on to be our teachers and so on. So ideas do definitely do not stay in right. the university.
0: Now I want to come back to that a bit later because uh, I want to uh, to engage you in an argument about why. Uh, certain ideas follow certain trajectories from the campus uh, into uh, popular culture. But, but holding that back for a moment, we've, we've, we've got our own meta-narrative to deal with here. Uh, <laughs> your, your, your book is not only uh, a book about uh, ideas and analysis. It's, uh, it's also, uh, I think, kind of cleverly constructed around a narrative. There's a timeline uh, to this as well. And you have to kind of work through the book to get that timeline. But uh, that timeline has a great deal to do with uh, with my life. Uh, I'm age sixty, and oh, well. so uh, I I arrived at the uh, university campus just about the time a lot of this hit uh, on the shores of the United States. And I and I was in a particular place where I got it kind of full bore uh, in the uh, when I was seventeen, eighteen, nineteen years old, trying to figure some of these things out. And uh, you know the the language came. Uh, about postmodernism and, uh, and and that was really interesting to me because uh, as a teenager trying to deal with intellectual ideas and uh, very interested in philosophy and, and theology apologetics just trying to figure this out it was clear that modernity was uh, was not what the uh, the founders of the, of the modern age had intended and that was the the End of uh, kind of like Francis Fukuyama, the, the, the end of history in their own sense. They thought they had arrived at this, uh, this kind of permanent moment uh, in the aftermath of the Enlightenment. Uh, clearly, by the 1960s, things were unraveling. That, that, that was not it. And they'd unraveled more quickly, probably due to the, the crucible of war, for one thing, uh, in Europe. But Europe had landed in the United States in a big way. Uh, but uh, to, to make the meta narrative uh, kind of come a little bit further, uh, by the time I was doing graduate work, uh, the entire academy uh, was, uh, was, was was in a postmodern moment. Not every academic, but the, the, the academic mood. But then came the declaration about uh, 19, oh, I don't know, 99, 2005, postmodernism's over. But I think one of the best arguments you make in your book is that postmodernism is not over. It was never over.
1: That's right. In fact, I think we... we where we had the postmodern philosophers uh, particularly uh Jean-François Lyotard saying that we live in the postmodern condition uh and he wrote that in 1979 i think we now actually live in the postmodern condition we, uh, and i think the internet has a lot to do with that um the internet is sort of postmodernity's playground if you will mm. and so the yeah the argument or the arc of the book is not is to actually disabuse academics of the belief that postmodernism died and convinced them that what happened is that it mutated or it changed. Yeah. It became something different and that, you know, we kind of earmarked the three-year span between 1989 and 1991 for when that transformation really took place.
0: Yeah, you know, uh, it, it just looking at this in the timeline, uh, the problem with postmodernism all along was asking what comes after postmodernism. <laughs> but in every one of these big intellectual movements, there's been no retreat to a status quo ante. So in other words, postmodernism didn't mean that modernism ended. It, it was, uh, I think, Habermas and others, speaking of a hyper-modernity. So this is, this, this is, of course, Habermas didn't like it in a lot of ways, but it was, it was an unfolding of, uh, uh, of the next stage. It, it was no retreat to a pre-modern condition. That was unthinkable in the academy. And, uh, and, 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 then with postmodernism, even when it was declared to be over, it was kind of over because it won, uh, a lot of the discourse, a lot of the, a lot of the, uh, the intellectual environment of the American Academy, it didn't return to, you know, enlightenment rationality. It, uh, it dived deeper into politics.
1: I mean, that's, that's generally the trajectory. That's right. Um, you, you mentioned Habermas, you could bring up uh, Zygmunt Bauman and his liquid modernity mm-hmm. as the next evolution. And he, he kind of makes the argument that uh, the the rationalist project slowly dissolved all of the foundations of society into mm-hmm. everything that had solidity became liquid and that what people call postmodernism is kind of an extreme variation on that. And he rejects the idea of postmodernism and says that this is right. just very late stage modernism. Um, my argument would be kind of to answer much of what you just said, that the people, and maybe even the people who are the architects of uh, liberalism in the first place, which is the, is the philosophical foundation that gave ro- rise to modernity, maybe didn't understand exactly what they were creating. And I don't think most people who, who support uh, the free and advanced societies that we live in now fully understand that liberalism was always meant to be, whether the architects of it meant that or not, it functions. So functionally, it's always been a means of resolving conflicts between people who disagree. In the political realm, we solve those with democracy. In the, the um, economic realm, we solve those with the market. And with uh, knowledge, we resolve those with rational discussion, rational debate, the ability to try to get away from our biases, to minimize their influence, mm-hmm. to check one idea against another. So you and I may disagree on many things, and I'm sure we do, we can do so in certain ways that are pro-social and productive, or we could do so in ways that are less good, uh, antisocial or destructive. And as a means of conflict resolution, mm-hmm. liberalism allows you to forward your idea, me to forward my idea, you check my ideas, I check yours, and ideally we would be carving away wheat from chaff by that process. And so my, my thinking at this point is that the postmodernists in particular, but also the critical theorists who were working alongside them in, in some respects, historically speaking, not directly, um, misunderstood liberalism. And now that we find ourselves in a very postmodern condition, uh, most people seem to misunderstand what liberalism is. And again, just to be very clear, because we're Americans, we don't mean Democrats or anything right. like that. We mean the philosophical underpinnings of the Declaration of Independence, the right. Classical liberalism. Even the Magna Carta, yeah. you know, Thomas Paine, all of these, yeah. uh, John Locke, and so on. Even the Reformation, as a matter of fact.
0: Yeah. Lots to talk about here. But as, as we're thinking about postmodernism and having this conversation, we need to define the terms, uh, j- mm-hmm. just in general terms, a uh, rejection of the meta narrative you mentioned Leotard, uh, and that 's the idea there's no all encompassing narrative to which all human beings are ultimately accountable uh and uh that gives the world meaning um and, and so that would mean in one sense the eclipse of marxism and christianity uh the 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 meta narratives uh of of the west in particular uh but th- but that gets me to another point that uh i've uh, I kind of intuited as a teenager trying to look at this, and it's it's been demonstrated again and again to me as I, I look at the history of thought in the West. Um, after the Enlightenment, people put these, in the Enlightenment itself, they put these extraordinary hopes for human liberation in some new way of thinking, but that liberation never comes. And so one of the things, you know, it you, you look at Derrick Bell, and, and so he's extremely critical of the civil rights movement because it didn't bring about the liberation that, uh, that he thought would come. The... Uh, the philosophers of the Enlightenment, well, their grandchildren thought the Enlightenment didn't deliver. And so, you know, postmodernism said, uh, you know, all the meta narratives of the modern age didn't deliver. And, and now you've got the, what you call reified postmodernism, uh, in which case you've got the grandchildren of the postmodernists saying postmodernism didn't deliver. There's a lot of frustration here.
1: That's right. And that's, in fact, why we called the book cynical theories.
0: Hmm.
1: Uh, Our understanding of what you've just described is that the theorists who, especially the postmodernists who were very Hmm. uh, frustrated, to characterize the postmodernists very briefly as a a set of people who were working in a particular time and place, they were Marxists who saw Marxism failing. So they couldn't believe in liberalism, they couldn't believe in Christianity, they couldn't believe in capitalism. And now the thing they did believe in had also failed them, so they were very, very pessimistic. But what we constantly see with this rejection of meta-narratives and, and and so on is this 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 tendency to look at these ideals like they're going to like like there's a faith that they are supposed to deliver right everything perfectly. And it's very easy to become cynical when reality slaps you upside the head and says things aren't that simple. Um, My co-author Helen is very uh, eloquent at saying that the postmodernists would have had a more reasonable case if it were true that the moment liberalism arrived on the scene, then everything was supposed to be liberal. But that's of course, that's absurd. And there's a very strong feeling that that's almost how they think about the world. Oh, so now, you know, we have the Civil Rights Act, so racism is supposed to just go away that's not realistic. Uh, the, the question and the reason, and we saw this particularly in Foucault's genealogies, um, Mm -hmm. but you can, you can see it in the 1619 project today. You can see it in essentially any of the analysis that we talk about. There's this assumption. Also, I should bring up the idea of positivism with science, that there's this belief that science is very a scientific era in the 1940s and fifties. You know, you can even think of those, um, television and radio programs where they have that voice, you know, the 1950s voice. I even say that, and you know what I'm talking about. We have science and we are going to go to the moon. You know, it's got this very self-certain thing. And if, if we had the expectation that 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 now meant that all the problems were, were going to be solved and maybe the, the tones of voice and the attitudes of the the spokespeople gave that impression, then there would be something more reasonable in postmodernism. But this is mostly a cynical read of one step from another. You can take, say, uh, Michel Foucault's history of sexuality, and he says, oh, well, Christianity got it wrong. Then we moved into sexology, and that got it wrong. And then we moved into uh, this kind of criminal thinking about it, and that got it wrong. And so we're always going to have it wrong. But at no point do you ever see this, This. well, you know, we're still not perfect, but we got it better. You, you right, never have right. that kind of an admission, um, which I think is is core to the liberal project, which is why, I, I mean, they, they always say that it's, it's supposed to be radicals or whatever revolutionaries up against the status quo. But in liberalism, if you understand what it does, there is no status quo. There's always a perpetual state of learning and using that learning to reflect on society and hopefully do better by it.
0: Yeah, the, uh, the, the postmodernists, and, uh, and here I'm talking about the, the ones who are self-consciously uh, a part of postmodernism, especially in the, the 70s and 80s, uh, they, they were filled with enormous frustration. And I think a part of that is because, um, you know, you had the failure of Marxism as a communist revolution on the part of the proletariat over economic issues. It didn't happen in Western Europe. But you know, I was just reading the other day Rosa Luxemburg, and re- reminding myself that that uh, that frustration came really early. You know, it's so early that Lenin had to deal with it. Why was there no revolution in the most industrialized city, uh, you know, on on the planet, which was London at the time, and and, and in particular, why was there no Marxist revolution in Germany? Uh, because it 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 would have made philosophical sense that it, it would have happened there, and so you have this enormous frustration with uh, communism not working and then i want to fast forward just for for the sake of of uh, clarity and time here Uh, i arrived uh, on a college campus in 1977 and uh, it was a a secular university i spent a year as a faculty scholar at a university in florida and uh, florida was doing a pretty clever thing back then they thought Uh, you still had mandatory retirement uh, for uh, academics uh, in uh, in 1977 and so the state of Florida basically sent teams up to places like Harvard, Yale, uh, Brown, and uh, went to professors about age 65 and said, hey, why don't you come work in Florida, you know, uh, join this new university faculty, and, uh, you, you know, you can basically end up retiring in Florida. We'll pay the bills. And so I, I got all these professors from the Ivy League in particular and other places who ended up in this university. And, uh, and it was the first time I heard this, James. Uh, they, they were saying, look, uh, here, here's the deal. Uh, it is clear that the consumer suburban uh, society of the rationalized West is never going to allow for or facilitate the rising up of the proletariat in a Marxist uh, revolution as in uh, classical Marxism. But that's okay, uh, because there's another way for this to happen. It won't be from the bottom up like the proletariat. It's going to be from the top down through the institutions – and, and so I, I'd not heard the name of, uh, of Gramsci at that point, but uh, it, w- it was basically, you know, Rudy Deutschky and, and uh, the long march through the institutions. And so they, they were saying, look, what we're going to do is take Marxist analysis and, and, and run it through all the disciplines in the academy and then, and then through all the institutions. Uh, but I think they thought that that was going to bring you know, an immediate revolution in society. I, I think if, if, if my professors in 1977 saw America in 2020, they'd be very frustrated. Uh, you know, isn't there just that kind of frustration that every generation thinks they're going to deliver on this?
1: I think that's probably right. I mean, the ever since especially the failures in the 1920s and 30s that you were speaking of, there's been kind of a repeating cycle where various academics who, to put it flatly, are a very bourgeois uh, class of people, have decided that they're going to figure out the right way. They're, they kind of appoint themselves like philosopher kings, and they're going to figure out the right, right way to teach everybody to think. They're going to give them a critical consciousness, and that will change everything. And so there's these kind of cycles of, of very bourgeois theories that, that don't really connect to reality, because even with Marx, which was, you know, not, well, maybe you could say it's bourgeois or not, there's still the, there's this, this, this analysis, which points at some truths and some, in, some things that are incorrect. And then there's this kind of like gray area where the, nobody knows how it works. And then all of a sudden we have the, the communist utopia and nobody's ever solved for the, how it works part. Meanwhile, of course, mm-hmm. academics on, on the, that are opposed to this, have figured out why there will be no making it work so it is a self frustrating philosophy and they because it it, it, again the cynicism because it then focuses on its own failures and blames the system for those failures uh, it can't say it's our own shortcomings that prevent us from getting to where we want to go it has to be the the nefarious powers it has to be the false consciousness it has to be the, the ruling classes it has to be these people installing ideolo- or instilling ideologies in all of us. They are unable to understand that the source of their own frustration is themselves, and then they're able to project that outward. And so the frustration mounts and it kind of goes in these cycles where then eventually it bursts out onto the scene as we're seeing in 2020, as we saw in 1968. Um, I think that this is a, a pretty cogent analysis of the, the genus of the problem, as opposed to just the species that we're dealing with at present
0: but one one might argue in retrospect that the most surprising aspect of all of this is that uh, critical theory itself would uh, would it would emerge as a conversation uh, rather necessary conversation in, in the United States uh, and necessitate your book because uh, critical theory as it began you know, we we'll, we'll talk about the frankfurt school and 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 all those figures that, it, it, it didn't get so far politically, even in Germany, for instance, uh, but, but now all of a sudden it's been revivified, and, 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 and now it shows up as uh, this explosive uh, intellectual solvent uh, go, working its way through the academy. How, how did that happen? So
1: the thing is that critical theory started off, I would even argue, I don't agree with it, but it started off responsibly. You had Horkheimer laying out this concept that traditional theories, meaning rationality, philosophy, empiricism, Mm -hmm. science, are not necessarily sufficient to deal with the moral implications of ideas that come out uh, of of that line of inquiry. And so you need this second dimension to analysis, this critical theory. And in particular, we want to be as charitable and generous to their their case as possible. They literally were staring at fascism and saying something is causing fascism, something is causing genocides, uh, it, it mass scale, the Holocaust and so on. And it is the rejection of any sense of morality, uh, the, the understanding that with, with science and technology, maybe we can do this. So the question of should is utterly removed. And this leads to, to, to true horrors, but their original formulation, and, and you can even find Herbert Marcuse in the 1970s complaining about this on, on, in, in a very famous interview he did on television, uh, they, they believe that it should be done in a very intellectual way. That critical theory and traditional theory should be combined. Now, I don't want to rescue critical theory or even any of these particular critical theorists from, from the consequences of their ideas. But the truth is that they at least tried to be more responsible with it. Now I mentioned Herbert Marcuse and Herbert Marcuse is kind of a transformational figure And the United States becomes a transformational context. Why didn't it take off in Germany? Well, I can't say for sure, but I can guess at why it was successful taking off in the United States. There was a very um, virulent strain of leftist activism that arose around the civil rights movement. And uh, if you read One Dimensional Man, Herbert Marcuse right. is very clear that racial minorities are a an avenue to tap for this conflict theory-based oppressor versus oppressed resentment to try to wake up and achieve liberation. So now you have this move from let's look at the the production of culture, mass culture, elite culture, high culture, middle culture, stealing away the the revolutionary will, um, popular culture, very Adorno at that point, saying things like that, and now it's shifted to let's get the others, let's gather the others, let's gather in particular the racial minorities, and let's combine them, this is explicitly a quote from One Dimensional Man, let's let's combine them with the, the radical intelligentsia in the university, and so now you have this very willful move to make it about identity politics, which obviously in the 1960s were extremely relevant in the United States, but they've never lost their relevance. Then what happened was that they started to become less and less important as the echoes of the civil rights era and civil rights legislation came down through history so that by the 1980s and going into the 1990s, they were seriously having diminishing returns. So that's where you start to have the analyses of Derek Bell critical race theorist, uh, number one, uh, along with Kimberly Crenshaw, critical race theorist number two, I mean, literally they're named as the two founders, uh, mentor and mentee at Harvard Law, laying out this new vision that clearly somehow the oppressor-oppressed dynamic has never been resolved, that this this wasn't uh, a success, it didn't bring total racial reconciliation or total uh, racial equality, so something is missing. And they, they devised critical race theory, for example. And the, the race issue is an extremely touchy one. But we could, of course, talk about the way that the feminists used it for that issue. We could talk about the way that the LGBT, I think it was just the uh, gay-lesbian alliance at the time, used it um, mm-hmm. in terms of the, the gay, what became the gay pride movement. And so you can start looking at all the different identity factors. We could even get into the aspects of the social model of disability. Eventually, fat mm-hmm. activism arose out of fat feminism. And you get all of the various... Um, pieces of the puzzle kind of coming to fore where it became about identity politics and I think the vector there was that Herbert Marcuse Marcuse, uh, intentionally made it about identity politics and then he trained a generation of radicals including most most obviously uh, and and openly uh, Angela Davis uh, the black feminist who then went to Palestine and further radicalized herself and then came back with this whole new way of thinking that sort of founded the black feminism movement in that liberationist paradigm. Uh, and so that really set the stage for how critical theory retained its relevance and so Helen and I have a discussion that we've decided doesn't matter at that crucial point at the end of the 1980s and into the 1990s was it that postmodernism mutated into a critical theory that uses postmodern tools or was it the critical theory picked up postmodern weapons uh, which one is the the, the main Object and what we finally decided over months and months and months and months of discussion about this back and forth. She said, it Is postmodernism picking up critical theory? I said, It's critical theory that has learned to be postmodern. Um, we decided they, they fused, they just yeah. fused. They cherry picked these activists in the 90s, cherry picked from both traditions uh, very anti intellectually. But it's very easy to do to justify that. And here we are.
0: Yeah, it's very easy to do because uh, they're amazingly parallel. Uh, in their hopes and aspirations and and they're amazingly similar in the fact that everything has to fit into a oppression-oppressor a a, a uh, uh, kind of a matrix. And by the way, you know, Marcuse comes to the United States. He arguably had his greatest influence in the United States and uh, so, you know, the the hotbed of a lot of this shifted from Frankfurt to uh, Berkeley, you know, and, and, and right here in the United States, Americans largely unaware of all of this. Um, you point to the trajectory of so let, let's assume these these uh, these movements have fused, uh, but now it's being driven through every single discipline. So uh, and and in chapter by chapter, I, I, you really very helpfully lay out, uh, you know, the, and and I think again it's a, it's 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 somewhat sequential with postcolonial theory and then queer theory and. Critical race theory, intersectionality, feminism, and gender theory, and then disability and fat studies, and and look, a lot of Americans are going to be shocked by that last part because, as you say, it's actually more au courant uh, at, at the current uh, moment in uh, in England, uh, in Britain. But uh, but nonetheless, this is uh, this is the world we live in now. And and what is shocking to me, as a theologian and cultural analyst, is that. Uh, that this is showing up explicitly now. That, that's what's different. All these ideas were behind what was coming out of Hollywood, where Marcuse, by the way, had enormous influence. Um, it, it, you know, it was always a subtext. It was only in the background. But now, it, now it's being foregrounded in, in ways that I, I think are uh, actually shocking. So walk us through the chapters. Okay,
1: yeah. So the the book is organized to to explain what postmodernism is, to derive its core principles and themes, so it's identifiable, uh, so that we can track it through history. And then it moves into describing what we call applied postmodernism, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, where the critical theory infused itself into postmodernism, or vice versa, and it became packaged up for activists. And the way that that happened was that they Chose for for various reasons that I think I described well enough already to use identity and systemic oppression based on identity as a as, as an objective really real thing that is obviously only subjectively experienced and only can be communicated in terms of subjective terms. So that applied postmodernism continues those themes and those uh, those those various uh, principles of postmodernism, but now has them in a very activist oriented way where it's no longer the goal to deconstruct everything because it's believed that you can't deconstruct a system of oppression uh, without having, I'm sorry, you can, you can't deconstruct the lived reality of Mm -hmm. systemic oppression without having the privilege of being outside of it. So this was the observation that changed the course. Uh, It came from the black feminists in particular, uh, and then it goes into these various theories. So post-colonial theory, you know, fell mostly from Edward Said who combined Franz Fanon, the, the very, very radical, um, the, I guess, psychoanalyst who analyzed the post-colonial context, the wretched of the earth, black skins, white masks. Uh, you could even say that Antifa is the combination of Herbert Marcuse and Franz Fanon's philosophy. And you can get that by reading their books where they cite them all the right. time and say that that's the case. So post-colonial theory wanted to explore this, this, oppressor or oppressed dynamic in terms of the East versus the West, or the West as setting up uh, its own goodness and power over Eastern cultures as being barbaric and backwards and superstitious, whereas the West is enlightened and rational and scientific and, and civilized, and it use a very uh, both Foucauldian and and Derridian analysis to try to flip that around. Uh, Edward Said's book was called Orientalism, and he said that this construction is Orientalism, which was a very rhetorically and politically savvy move because the people who studied uh, outside of the western context called themselves orientalists in a very neutral way before right. that so he therefore rendered all of his critics brand the new united the name, states state
0: but, department had an entire department basically known as the orientalists i mean yeah and, and yeah, it, yeah it,
1: exactly so yeah. he he very savvy move and then uh the the goal there then is to deconstruct the colonial mindset and then once you start to say that things like uh using the postmodern aspect of this that Thought, knowledge, systems, language, those are actually products of the Western culture. And science is is usually one of them that's named as a product of the Western culture. That anybody who takes those things up has now been colonized by the West. And so they have to be decolonized. So you're allowed to now use post-colonial theory to take apart literally anything that that resembles uh, rational or scientific thought. With queer theory, the, the object, this is mostly going to be Judith Butler, we could name other characters as well, mm-hmm. of course, but the, the object became to take apart stable categories of sex, gender, and sexuality in order to liberate people from the violence of categorization, as it's called, that they happen to <laughs> be who they are. And uh, that, that that that's an intolerable, intolerable thing. And so queer theory was born out of a desire to examine the ideas of normal and abnormal and to remove or even reverse the ideas of whether normal and abnormal are, are good or not. Uh, critical race theory came out of critical legal studies. We, we mentioned that a moment ago with Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw. It took on postmodern tools and it took on a very explicitly identity first mm-hmm. approach. Uh, Kimberly Crenshaw very famously in Mapping the Margins, this is her 1991 paper, where she says that intersectionality, she, she doesn't introduce intersectionality here, but she defines it the most clearly. Um, She laid it out a few years earlier in another paper. But in this paper, she says that intersectionality is a provisional concept that's used to link contemporary politics to postmodern theory. And what she means by contemporary politics, she says at the beginning of the paper is the liberationist radical, uh, in other words, neo-Marxist critical theory paradigm. And she says that we're now going to recognize that a statement, I am black, is more important and more valuable than a statement like, I'm a person who happens to be black, because the second of these forwards universal humanity first. And as you talked about with the um, pessimism here, the liberalism had failed, that approach had failed, colorblindness had failed. So now we have to focus on race all the time in everything in order to try to remove the, the stain of racism, if you will. So it's like this: they have this idea like the, the, the fabric of society itself in every dimension is stained with with racism. And the only way, this is a, an, an indelible stain. You read mm-hmm. Derrick Bell, he says it has a permanence to it. You read any of the core critical race theory texts and they start off by saying that the racism is the ordinary state of affairs in society. You read Robin DiAngelo's um, mm-hmm. distillation of this from 2013 and she says the question is no longer, Did racism take place? But how did racism manifest in the situation for it's to be assumed that it's in every situation and the analysis is to find it, which is again, a very cynical way to read human interactions, phenomena or organizations. And so this is a very um, kind of cynical way to approach the idea of race, but it's also a very uh, divisive way that forwards the ideas that um, race has to be made relevant, more relevant and more relevant and more relevant in order to overcome the, the problem of racism, which they see as kind of a permanent stain on the fabric of society, and they see no way to remove this stain. So this, the, the fabric itself has to be unmade and remade in a critical fashion in order not to have it. So this is a, a, a pretty nasty way to approach this. Um, gender theory uh, or came a, a lot out of kind of feminism going into women's studies. It's kind of a very complicated history uh, lots of branches of feminism turns Mm -hmm. out (laughs) none of them get along. Uh, we started out the chapter by chronicling something (laughs) poor Helen had chronicled something like 25 different branches of feminism. And I said, Helen, we can't do 25. We have to do like three, this is way too many. We have Mm -hmm. to group them up somehow. Nobody's going to pay attention to this. Um, but yeah, gender, gender studies came out of women's studies by trying to, uh, say that the object of, of relevance is seeing gender as being socially constructed and to r- advance that idea as far as humanly possible. Of course, queer theory spun out of this, this idea, so those are related. But the idea went so far as even w- w- within queer theories to say that sex is also socially constructed, Everything's socially constructed. Right. And so the idea is to interrogate the social construction of gender and thus try to render it deconstructed and, and less meaningful. Fat and disability studies uh, apply the same line of thinking, especially the identity first thinking we see in critical race theory got adopted into the, these. Uh, many of the methods of queer theory got adopted. They see, you know, being disabled as abnormal, being fat as abnormal as society views things, and therefore we have to do the normal abnormal queer analysis. They're kind of these latecomers to the party, very um, hodgepodge sticking together of ideas that the other theories had already developed. Um, The one that people will find most alarming, of course, is I've run into this, it surprises me, I've lost touch a little bit. People say fat studies, what's that? Is that like studying obesity? And it's no, it's the systematic rejection of the idea of obesity as a oppressive discourse generated by medicine to control fat people. Uh, it's a very conspiracy theory and that's a
0: real argument you uh, I, I came across this uh when i was uh in in london just to, just before covid-19 and uh, on uh, university campuses uh it, that that's a much more uh, vibrant i'll say that d- discussion uh, uh there where the norms of medicine are are now being rejected as being a part of a capitalist uh, consumerist uh, conspiracy
1: You're right yeah um the that it goes so far as to even say that if we were to come up with say that we the pharmaceutical companies finally had their, I think, found their their, if you will, holy grail, pardon the 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 metaphor. But if they found their, their pill that cures uh, being overweight that brings people to their to their ideal right. weight, uh, that that would actually be a fat genocide. they They perceive it that way. and and that that same
0: dis- argument is is being on this side of the Atlantic used increasingly. Uh, And I I confronted it pastorally uh, uh, in in the last year by people who say if uh, deafness could be cured or blindness could be cured, uh, that would be the genocide of deaf people and and blind people. Right,
1: which is alarming, but I'll give you an even more alarming one. Imagine that same pill I just mentioned with regard to fat actually existed, and it were to bring people to their ideal weight. There are actually communities called pro-ana, which refers to pro-anorexia that see anorexia yeah. nervosa itself a severe eating disorder that's extraordinarily dangerous mm-hmm. and unhealthy especially to young mm-hmm. girls as an identity as an identity mm-hmm. to be leaned into as an identity to embrace so if a pill were to be invented that brought people to their ideal weight mm-hmm. which is a healthy weight which is not an anorexic weight you would then have that being a genocide of the anorexic identity yeah.
0: but that gets me to a huge question that uh, you don't you don't resolve really in your book, but, but uh, it's in the background to everything, and, and that is that uh, if you take the Western conception of humanity, and I'm going to say a biblical conception of humanity, there are three different contexts. It, it starts with every single human being made in the image of God and, uh, and situated within a, a particular context of family, and, and then you do have on the other side, uh, you, you might say the, the largest category is humanity as, uh, what we share in common, every single one of us, made in God's image, regardless of race, creed, ethnicity, uh, historical placement, you know, et cetera. And, and in between are is social man, or social humanity. Uh, the, uh, the critical theorists, and, and especially by the time you get to, to identity politics, everything's the group. The individual largely disappears. And, right. uh, and and Western liberalism, and by that we mean the Western experiment in ordered liberty, as in the Declaration of Independence, is built upon um, an understanding of the the importance of the individual and the concern the individual is going to be crushed by the society. But now the uh, individual disappears into these group identities.
1: That's right. Yeah, the fourth of the the four themes that we outline in in cynical theories of postmodernism is the denial of the universal mm-hmm. of humanity. The denial right. of individual in favor of group identity. Uh, In in this school of thought, they call it positionality. Mm -hmm. The individual is to be understood in terms of their, almost like an ambassador for their group identities, which are to be understood intersectionally. And so all of your relevant group identities, which mix and match are relevant. And you have to recognize as an ambassador of those groups that you're not Mm -hmm. an individual, but rather you're a spokesperson. So you would have to say things like, say you were a black man, you would have to come out and say, well, as a uh, as a man, I have to kind of be, I have to, I have to remain silent and listen to my, my female com- compatriots. And as a black person, I can say that this has been my lived experience of oppression. This gives me unique insight, which is the intersectional derivation of what the feminists earlier had come up with called standpoint epistemology or standpoint theory. Um, so you have this this issue now, where you always have to speak as an identity, and it's because the notion that it came from I think it, I think it originated in feminism, personal is political, uh, has gone the to the, a did. step further, yeah. where the is is now kind of both directions. A personal, the person mm-hmm. is their politics. So this is why, for example, you see someone like uh, Kanye West put on a Make America Great Again hat, and the next thing you know, you have Tanahisi Coates coming out and saying he's not really black. Um, right. So he's he's disqualified himself, and this, of course, was explained more explicitly later by our friend, at the New York Times, uh, Nicole Hannah Jones, who did the sixteen nineteen project, and she said, "Well, there's a difference between being racially black and being politically black. Which, if you want to play the, you want to play it clearly, what this tells you is that the ideology thinks only in terms of people that it agrees with, and that's the only people Absolutely. it speaks for. It doesn't yeah. speak for, say, black yeah. people or gay people or women. It speaks for socially constructed groups and those people who speak authentically to the way the theory conceives of those are the ones who are the authentic representatives. And that's what intersectionality demands of people.
0: Most readers realize that every time you read a book, you're effectively having a conversation with the author or authors. That's particularly true in a book like this. And uh, now I have the opportunity for a conversation with one of the authors. And uh, that's an incredible privilege. But reading is a privilege. Just the, the opportunity to pick up a book and, and engage with uh, another's mind. That, that's a rare privilege. And to take ideas seriously. And uh, charitably, but always critically in the best sense, uh, reading a book, reading a newspaper article, or anything, uh, consuming any artifact of, uh, of our consumer culture, it requires us to think carefully about what we're doing while we're reading and to think about thinking as we're thinking. And that's the fun of it. So intellectually, uh, critical theory is something like an acid. And it reminds me of uh, uh, a parable that Daniel Dennett at Tufts University has, has used, and that's the parable of the universal acid. It's uh, He talked about being a teenager and... Uh, imagining an acid that would dissolve everything including the container that held it and including the you know the the table in which it sat until eventually the entire cosmos is is destroyed by this universal acid and uh, i think that parable plays out here because we see it in real time i mean the headlines this week are about uh, ellen DeGeneres on the wrong side of history Mm -hmm. Uh, you know because Uh, this is exactly can't stay on the left yeah go ahead
1: no, I'm sorry, I didn't even hear the last part because I yeah, I mean, you things. you
0: you can't you you can't stay on, on the left. So Betty Friedan, uh, the prophetess of uh, of second wave feminism, you know, by 1977, she's threatened with being kicked out of the movement because she's anti lesbian, you know, and sees it as the lavender menace, you know. And and and, and uh, you know, Martina Navratilova is uh, is now on the wrong side of history uh, because she believes that uh, women, biological women, ought to uh, compete in Women's sports uh, at at the highest level. You you can't stay all current on the left for long. That's
1: right. Yeah, this is this is not an ideology that can be compromised with. A lot of people want to try to introduce you know a soft version of it or whatever. Um, they think oh well we can bring it in a little bit. We can use the use it analytically, but the centerpiece of the ideology is complicity with systems of oppression. That is the object at the the very center. So I started off earlier saying ideas have consequences. That idea has a consequence is that if anything that is uh, complicit with systemic oppression is bad, it's only a matter of time until they figure out a way that you are also systemic or complicit with systemic oppression. So you can't, Mm -hmm. you can't compromise with this ideology. You can't bring a little bit of it in, because um, if they compromise with you, if you try to have a compromise with them, and it's very important that somebody asked me on Twitter just a little while ago, what what treaty, what truce, what, what compromise could we make to just get yeah. this to stop, which is the fear, because people will want the, the mayhem to stop. And the answer is there's not one, because if they, if they said, okay, here's, if you sat down with one of them, for example, and, and one of these mm-hmm. very radical activists, maybe Angela Davis, I don't know, we'll just pick a name. And you said, this is, this is as far as I'm willing to go, but I'm willing to bend on X, Y, and Z, but I'm not willing to bend on, on RS and Q. Uh, That, and she signed to that, that would mean that she's being complicit in the oppressions of RS and Q, which is exactly the opposite of what is possible within their ideology. So the only way that they can compromise, the only way that they can have anything short of, of total acceptance of their critical view, Liberation from oppression being the key and only moral value is by uh, by having all of the power, uh, having all of the say. Anything else betrays their ideology. Anything else betrays their their one core value. Um, it would be like turning your back on God, right. which, as a Christian, you'll understand is not something that it is is something you can be compromising about. So there's no room for for a compromised partial position. I mean, I, I, you know, you will, I think, know about the fake papers we wrote a couple of years mm-hmm. ago, the fake academic papers. And one of them oh, yeah. was a translation of a chapter of, of Hitler's Mein Kampf. And the phrase from that that really stuck out to me was there will be no half measures. And that's how this mm-hmm. works. There are no half measures. Meanwhile, because it's, it, it can find oppression in anything. Remember, it's not the question is not did racism take place, but how did racism manifest in this situation? because it can read into it any any way that it wants. And it's anti-intellectual and it's now postmodern and that it can, can, it's all about subjective truth and not objective reality. Um, it can attach to anything. It can attach to Christian faith. It can attach to education. It can attach yeah. to national governments. It can attach to our nuclear labs. Apparently um, it, it can attach literally to anything and make a critical theory of, anything, even math. I mean, there's been a summer-long argument that I think I started about two plus two and whether or not it equals four or five. Um, it can attach to anything.
0: Yeah. When I, uh, when I teach philosophy and worldview, I, I use the two plus two plus four, and you're a mathematician. Your, your graduate work is, is in math, and uh, I think what, uh, what you uh, define as uh, uh, abstract math uh, mm-hmm. at That's some right. level.
1: Enumerative combinatorics, more specifically, if you want to play dorky times.
0: Well, I'm really appreciate you saying that, but I must admit, uh, I'm I'm not able to engage that that particular uh, uh, branch of mathematics. We'll sit down uh,
1: and I'll show you the basics sometime. It'll be fun. You'll appreciate, right. it and we don't I, have to go very far. <laughs> uh,
0: I would appreciate that, but when you say two plus two equals four, um, the uh, the the fact is that there are people. Who, on the one hand, will say two plus two equals four is is obvious, and uh, for instance, when they point to their contract, uh, they want to make clear that two plus two equals four, but they want to argue that the entire project of Western civilization is based upon an oppressive limitation of knowledge to the privileged, uh, who exercise their privilege by applying two plus two equals four in such a way that it uh, it represses people and and groups in particular. Right, but. Uh, but you, you point to something, and I I just want to get to this. You know, there can be no resolution, or, um, in other words, the revolution has to continue always. There can be no resolution. That this, this is where it differs from classical Marxism. At least Marx right. had an eschatology. Uh, have, the, there is there is no end game. Have you read uh, your uh,
1: Paulo Freire, the yes. Brazilian educator, and his yes. his remark on uh, Pedagogy revolution. of the
0: Oppressed? Yeah.
1: That for a revolution to be authentic, it must be perpetual. For the second, it stops being revolutionary. It is the status quo. So yeah, yep. perpetual revolution.
0: Uh, two big questions I, I want to address to you. Uh, one of them is, and and I would, I would have been glad to have had the time to walk through every one of these chapters because I actually think you trace, you trace the genealogy. Uh, there's Foucault. Uh, of, uh, of all of these ideas. It's extremely well. You lay them out very well. But, uh, but where is this headed? So uh, there's a sense in which uh, I think the American people, and I'll say American Christians, for example, who, uh, who are, are, are deeply aware of uh, the reality of injustice and, uh, and very concerned a- about the humanity of every single human being and you know they're supposed to be, uh, they understand that things need to be fixed, and and, uh, and I'll call that reform. There's a reform impulse. but uh, but what most of them don't understand is that what's going on, and, and especially I, I won't to say the people on the streets, but the people who are driving uh, that dynamic, um, they're not looking for reformation. They're looking for top to bottom revolution. And as we said, just in in continuing. So what I see, and, and I appreciate your title, "Cynical Theories." I go back to frustration, heartbreak, and frustration. You know what I see right now happening in the headlines is is an enormous amount of heartbreak and frustration. The people, you know, the revolution isn't delivering. So where do you see this going?
1: I don't think that the ideology itself is stable and i don't think that it is popular when people see what it is so i event i think it will eventually fall you have to be always wary when you see something like this arising that it will gain mm-hmm. enough institutional power to do some real damage before it collapses even the the, the marxist experiments collapsed but they did right. some serious damage along the way china notwithstanding mm-hmm. we'll see what happens uh north korea i suppose also but I think where this is going is that it we're in a moment actually of moral panic mm-hmm. uh we do have and of course i share these um profound concerns about the humanity of every individual every person regardless of race sex gender sexual identity as judith butler phrased it that exasperated etc uh, with all the different categories of people who've had it harder than others historically and in some ways even today But we are concerned about drawing that line between reform and revolution. We're we're, we're very concerned about applying rigorous methodologies to find out what the genuine problems are, the depth of the problems, the causes of the problems, likely solutions to the problems. Whereas on the other side, it's a a very toddler-like mentality that there's a bad thing, get it off of me. So not everything Mm -hmm. with the police is roses, abolish the police. That's, That's the mentality, the thing that's not working for me, get rid of it completely uh, which is a completely different mindset. Um, so where I see this going is using this moral panic, using the narratives that are being spun, we can look at the black lives matter situation. Mm -hmm. And of course, this, the three letter or three word, uh, slogan, not the movement itself is, is a truism. It's something that virtually everybody, we can't get everybody, but virtually everybody agrees with in the world today. Um, However, if you look at the, the movement and you look at the, the claims that they're making about police violence, they just don't hold up to evidence. Right. If you look at the specific cases that they're holding up as martyrs, they, they, they're very flimsy. These are not exactly the martyrs that, that a movement would want on its side. The stories just don't stack up. So what's happening is that a narrative has run away. There's narrative privilege mm-hmm. with, with this because of the moral panic. So we have institutions taking this stuff on very quickly. I'm hearing more and more from people that it's backfiring where they've taken it on and now they want to find their way out. It's like, well, you, buddy, you made a deal with the devil. <laughs> He's going to collect. Right. And that's right. the end of, of this is that it will in, infiltrate as many institutions as it can, which may go as high as our federal government. It's not impossible. It could happen here, as Absolutely. they say. And every institution that it infects will lose all credibility and collapse within some it, amount of time that I don't think is terribly long.
0: Yeah, it can't work. I mean, you see uh, American corporations trying to incorporate, no pun intended, incorporate this, and uh, it and, and it, it doesn't work. Uh, so, uh, for instance, there was a New York Times uh, article the other day about uh, inclusivity officers, and their tenure is incredibly short at all these Fortune 500 cor- corporations, because they can't deliver, uh, you know, what's expected. Uh, they they can't bring about a revolution uh, as, as uh, basically, their job description. And, you uh, and it doesn't work. Uh, I have a conversation with books all the time. I've I've got a fountain pen in my hand and a red marker at, at hand. And uh, so when I read your book, you had one point at the at the, in your conclusion where you said, you know, we have to avoid this being institutionalized. And uh, I just wrote a giant how in the margins. Well,
1: uh, we we were a little more optimistic when we wrote that yeah. chapter. You know, before this riot stuff started. Um, mm. And the answer, what we've seen successfully, is is. Mm consistently being able to stand up and say uh to to stand for 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 universal principles and individual principles uh whether if it's in say an institutional setting and somebody says well this institution is racist the what has worked and it does not work easily i don't want to give people this oh it's just a magic wand and it works but it's to demand evidence you say the institution is racist bring the evidence and we'll evaluate it and let's see the, the totality of the evidence, let's, let's weigh it out, and let's have, you know, whether it's a conference or whatever we have to have to hear the voices. And we do say in the last chapter that we need a humbler liberalism. We need to listen right. more. Uh, we liberal, Liberals throughout history have, I think that the, the big takeaway from this whole movement is when you see this frustration and this anger, mm-hmm. there's a legitimate side to it as well, which is people don't feel like they're being heard. So we can all learn to listen better. We can all learn to bring people yeah. to the table and listen more. But then it has to come down to objective standards. Where's the evidence? We have to have evidence. If we're gonna change the organization around your claim of racism, we have to have evidence that the majority of us can agree that a reasonable person, if we use the, the term from law, reasonable person right. standard, would agree that this constitutes a problem. And then let's figure out why that happened, how it happens and what we can do that might actually work to deliver the, the answer. When it's in a kind of an individual context, it's a little bit different uh, where you're not, you don't wanna necessarily demand evidence. But let's say that, uh, you know, somebody comes to you with this. It, it, the principle ultimately is secularism, which protects faith from state encroachment and it protects the individual from the encroachment of faith and that they don't necessarily believe. So if a Muslim imam comes to you and they start preaching at you, you, you can say, listen, brother, I respect your right to believe that. And I'm glad that that's working for you. And I have a different set of commitments that I'm going to, to uphold. So in this case, somebody could come and say, well, what you just did, don't you think that's a little bit racist? And it's, the reply is, well, I have a different conception of racism. And I feel like uh, I have every right to have a different conception of racism, just like you have yeah. the right to have your conception of racism. And we start thinking in terms of this uh, very, it's technically secularism. It's the, it's the right. in a sense, the beating heart of liberalism is that each person's matters of private conscience get to be their matters of private conscience. If they want to form a community around it that's a matter of willful inclusion if you want to form a church please do go practice your faith within you know limits of the law of course let's not have sacrifices or whatever else obviously um but you get to practice your faith as you will right and so this seen as a faith just conceptually not necessarily legally immediately starts telling you what to do how do we keep it from institutionalizing see it as a faith legally then all of a sudden the entire apparatus of the first amendment and all of the law around that could start to deinstitutionalize it or just watch some start collapsing. You know, you get a couple of big corps collapse, say Disney takes a lot of this on, say they lose, you know, a couple billion dollars. You're immediately going to have a bunch of other corporations firing their diversity officers.
0: Or, uh, or at least cosmetically uh, <laughs> making, they may leave them in place, but they'll change, they'll change the way they do business. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, you use the word—this is, is a footnote, but it gets me to the last big question I want to ask you. Uh, I think you misuse the term secularism because you're using it—I I see the French use uh, of, of the word there. In the United States, it generally, at least in my circles, uh, means a more overt hostility uh, to religious faith. And uh, I don't think you mean that. I don't, no. Uh, in, I mean in the, book. the, the yeah.
1: broader principle of protecting faith from the state and protecting the individuals from the encroachment of faith that don't match their, their the contents of their private conscience,
0: So which the, I think the, everybody yeah.
1: agrees with. And it,
0: it, well, that, that's part of the American Charter. Yes. Yeah, that, uh, that's part of the American Charter. I mean, uh, so ev- everyone, meaning everyone outside the United States, that clearly is not the fact, as, as you would well know uh, right. in, in much of the world. And I
1: definitely don't mean this. by secular anti-religion. Yeah. I definitely yeah. don't mean that.
0: Yep. Yeah. All right. So then uh, the, the the final question I want to ask you, and I ask this in, in all honesty, because I agree with so much of your book, in fact, all the, all the, the major points of analysis, but you write from a different perspective. From a different worldview than than my own, I'm a uh, an evangelical Christian, uh, and, and you write as a, as an atheist. Uh, That's right. in, in in and you've written two books uh, on that. So one of the things I appreciate most about this book is uh, is your affirmation of truth uh, as a category, and uh, your uh, diagnosis of the problem of defining everything as uh, socially constructed, uh, and, and theorizing everything and Problematizing everything. Um, So, so, and I mean this with all sincerity. Where, where do you ground truth? And and by this, I understand two plus two equals four. But in a lot of our disputes right now are moral. Where where would you point to uh, the the true epistemic uh, authority for for morality and adjudicating that in a society?
1: Right, morality is a much a very complicated question. It is it is very difficult. So the the, the broad answer to your question, of course, of where do I, how do I ground truth? Mm-hmm. If we want to put it in more familiar terms, I might say Spinoza's God. But in general, it is the correspondence theory of truth. That if right. we go out, you and I, we have very different worldviews. We have very different understandings of things. But if we perform the experiment, then you know, a simple experiment or a complicated experiment, we're right. going to get roughly the same result. And if that's happening, then we can provisionally use that as, as a truth. Um, when it comes to morality, we are now in a very complicated, mm-hmm. very complicated uh, sphere. Human beings psychologically, human beings sociologically are very, very complicated systems. And I believe the sciences, sociology, psychology, and so on that study these things are in their infancy. They're almost, if we look historically at, you know, sciences like geology, you know, they were arguing like literally with cancel culture, they're arguing over whether the seafloor basalt rock was a product of volcanism or whether it was a product of something precipitating out of the ocean. It was the volcanists versus the uh, Neptunians, which sounds almost like a cartoon now. Um, But there was this this very violent conflict between academics before geology became an actual science. And then Lyell very famously said, look, we're just going to go look at the rocks. And they spent 20 years, they formed a conference that we're going to set aside their biases and they're going to, to the best that they can, they're going to look at the rocks and see what the rocks tell them and then a more mature science of geology was born and has matured ever since. Well, psychology and, and, and sociology are extraordinarily immature sciences still. We, we barely, barely understand what's going on and we're still caught up in ideas like, is the point of learning about the world to understand it or to change it, uh, to, to echo Marx. Um, and without having a very robust science of psychology and sociology We do have to do a lot of approximating, and that's part of why I think that the principle that we just discussed of secularism is so important, is that you are perfectly entitled to your beliefs that morality comes from, say, the Bible, for example, I think is the right answer for you, uh, or or your relationship even with with Christ as you understand him through the Bible and through, through the other theological writings. And I can say that I derive it from my experience with other human beings and what leads to positive outcomes and what leads to negative outcomes. And I admit that's in a very blurry way and that we can sit down in communication with one another because we believe that there is something that is moral. We believe that there are generally right answers Mm -hmm. to moral questions. and. Your views can inform mine and my views can inform yours. Maybe it helps you deepen your understanding of theology to talk about, you know, something from neuroscience. And maybe it helps me deepen my understanding of humanity by listening to a theologian uh, and, and to, to even read the gospel, for example. And so I think that this is the, the dividing line, right? That on the one side of this, we have this attitude mm-hmm. where we can... Uh, say that we we do believe that there are there are answers to these questions. We believe that there may be easier or harder to, re- to get to, or there are different mm-hmm. ways to get to them. And we can use them to mutually inform one another versus everything is almost relative, which is what we see with this critical social Absolutely. justice ideology. Mm-hmm. Uh, within postmodernism, of course, it was more or less that everything is relative. And then as it took on the critical theory, the liberationist paradigm came into play where that which upholds oppression is immoral and that which facilitates liberation, which basically means Marxism, is uh, moral. And that's, of course, one moral view. And I, if people want to believe it, I a mean, matter of private conscience. Good for you. Let's have a conversation. Maybe you're going to point to things that I'm not seeing and we can we can round out a better understanding of human interaction and human flourishing. But I mean, that's a very broad answer to the question. I don't have something to just say, you know, well, God is the objective standard and I can point to that. But I'm also definitely not a subjectivist. Um, Spinoza's God is pointing to the world to try to understand it the yep. best we can.
0: Fascinating discussion. I would look forward to uh, having uh, further discussions with you as uh, as that becomes possible. But you're an intellectually honest man, and I think you've made an incredible uh, case uh, in this new book you've written with Helen Pluckrose, "Cynical Theories." So, uh, James Lindsay, thank you for joining me today for Thinking in Public.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. It's a great conversation, Hal. I appreciate it.
0: As I said to James Lindsay, I am uh, shocked, frankly, at this point in my life that uh, the incursions of critical theory and the the reified form of postmodernism, and by now you know what we're talking about there, that uh, these have made such headway in American culture, not just in the academy, where quite honestly, uh, these forms of thought have basically been dominant for the better part of the last several decades. Uh, but, uh, but also in popular culture and in the headlines coming from what's happening on the streets of America. This is a very interesting development. It reminds us of the fact that ideas do have consequences. Uh, a title famously uh, made by the conservative writer Richard Weaver and uh, James Lindsay affirmed that very statement today. Ideas have consequences; they always do. But ideas also have a history, and uh, and ideas have future consequences. That it's our responsibility to try to trace out. And uh, another thing about ideas is that they are themselves uh, always developing. That, that, that's always true. You know you have one book on one idea, the next thing you know, there there are ten books, and then it's uh, one hundred and fifty books. But the conversation changes with every one of those books in some way or another. As, as time goes forward, it's uh, very interesting that just talking about traditional Western liberalism, James made the very good point that uh, it, it's it's not one thing in the sense that it's continuing to develop as a way of adjudicating conflict and and dealing with ideas as Christians. We look at this with a particular concern, because it's not only about understanding the consequences of ideas and the intellectual context of our day. It's, uh, it's understanding how we see all of these things as uh, measured against the totality of a Christian worldview. You know, one of the things that uh, comes up to me again and again in this book is the fact that there's the frustration of the eschatology that never comes. But if you are operating from a secular worldview, that eschatology is going to have to come now or you're never going to see it. But of course, uh, the true communist man, true communism never emerged. Uh, Utopia never comes. And and that's where Christians have a very different worldview, a very different timeline. We are looking forward uh, to the kingdom of Christ in its fullness. But that also means that we don't expect... All issues to be adjudicated, and every eye to be dry, and every tear to be wiped away. Until then, we do believe we're here to uh, do good, and to glorify God, and to make a difference, and uh, to engage our culture in such a way. But we have to engage our culture with truth, and, and that gets back to the last part of the conversation with James. Uh, our understanding of truth is not just based in the correspondence theory of truth. That's the first test of truth, by the way, for Christians. But it's that when we talk about morality and uh, when we talk about uh, issues of our our, uh, ultimate theological concern, uh, we actually believe that they correspond to objective reality, the objective reality of the self-existent God. And uh, yes, uh, this takes us down to the authority of Scripture. So Christians are going to read this book uh, and should read it very sympathetically and very appreciatively as an incredible indictment of uh, what's happening in intellectual culture on both sides of the Atlantic. And it needs to inform how we think, how we observe. It needs to inform our church life. Uh, it needs to inform our, uh, our engagement with the political and moral and cultural issues of the day. It needs to inform how we think about the academy and sending our kids to college. Uh, it, it, it needs to alert us to uh, how we talk and how we hear other people talk, uh, but we will also realize that, uh, that this particular book is written from a, a defender of uh, not only Western liberalism in the, in the more historic sense, but also of, uh, of issues that uh, are uh, more contemporary than anything the, the founders of, uh, of historic modern uh, classical liberalism would have imagined, uh, LGBTQ issues, you know, for example. And, uh, and so Christians are going to have a very interesting conversation with this book. But it's really important. I, I meant what I said. I think it's the, uh, the best analysis of the contemporary intellectual scene written by someone who, uh, or by two authors in this case, who really do understand what critical theory is. They understand what, uh, what it means that postmodernism never went away and is continuing. What it means that this is translated into the most not only seemingly unbelievable, but dangerous forms of thought and why it matters, because we care uh, because of love of God and love of neighbor. We, We care about what thought systems are shaping the thoughts and minds of our neighbors and what thoughts are establishing the society that we share with our neighbors. We understand all of this matters. And again, I'm very thankful for this conversation with James Lindsay. Hope for more conversations in the future. If you enjoyed this conversation, you'll find more than 100 of these programs at albertmuller.com under the tab, Thinking in Public. I want to thank you today for joining me for Thinking in Public. And until next time, keep thinking.